Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Rahul Vohra, founder and CEO of Superhuman. In this episode, we talked about what motivated Rahul to build Superhuman, how they iterated their way towards product market fit, and how they built the product market fit engine. We also discussed how the Superhuman team analyzes and segments the right feedback to focus on, why and how their onboarding process bought in industry-leading metrics, and lastly, the right way to get people to talk about your product. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Raul, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to have you today. For the listeners, Raul is the CEO and founder of Superhuman, the fastest email experience ever made. Superhuman have been experiencing some insane growth, but more importantly, product love, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Prior to Superhuman, Rahul was the founder of Reportive, which was later acquired by LinkedIn, and has invested in several startups. So my first question for you, Rahul, is what drove you to try and reinvent the email experience? Well, to understand the founding moments behind Superhuman, we actually have to wind the clock back by about 10 years. As you mentioned, my last company was called Reportive. We started that in 2010. And we built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. When people emailed you, we showed you what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets, and links to their social profiles. We grew rapidly, and two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And during those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, and still not working properly offline. And on top of that, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So we decided it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction is 100 milliseconds or less, an experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox, an experience that just worked offline so you could be productive anywhere, and of course, an email experience that had the best 
Gmail plugin functionality natively built in and was yet somehow still subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so with that, we built Superhuman. Yeah, I love the product and where it's going. And I mentioned to you all just before we started chatting now is uh, through the podcast, typically what I ask guests uh, every time at the end of the show is give us two resources that you recommend that people read on churn and retention, which goes into a profile. And actually, uh, one of your posts that you did on First Round Capital's uh, blog was one of the resources that's been one of the most recommended uh, from the show. And uh, I love the fact as well, like a lot of what you were talking about now and uh, the product itself and the main value proposition that it delivers uh, from remembering reading the post as well myself, a lot of that as well came out from this process that you took to understand and iterate your way towards product market fit. Uh, and this is something I actually love to touch on today in a little bit more detail for our listeners uh, because I thought it was a really novel and interesting way to use product market fit to iterate your way towards like a product and um, Maybe you want to talk us through the inspiration behind the process and talk us through quickly a little bit what the process looked like for you. Of course. So as we all know, product market fit is the number one reason why startups succeed and the lack of it is the number one reason why startups fail. But until recently, it has been very hard to actually define product market fit in a quantitative way. And this was a big challenge for me at Superhuman, where we were facing a multi-year build, and I needed a way of explaining to the team that we were not yet ready to launch. So I came up with a framework that we call the Product Market Fit Engine. The engine not only gives you a way to define product market fit, but also a metric to measure product market fit, and even a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. And it can even generate your roadmap for you, a roadmap that is essentially guaranteed to increase product market fit. So before we dive into what it is and how does it work, I think it's worth looking at the previous definitions of product market fit. For example, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, would say it's when you made something that people want. Sam Altman, would say it's when users spontaneously tell other people to use your product. But it is Mark Andreessen who has perhaps the most vivid definition. He would say, you can almost always feel it when product market fit is not happening. Customers aren't quite getting value. Users aren't growing that fast. Word of mouth is not spreading. The press reviews are kind of blah, and the sales cycle takes too damn long. But, he says, you can almost always feel it when product market fit is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. Reporters are constantly calling about your hot new thing. Investors are camping outside your house and money is piling up in your checking account. And as vivid and as compelling as Andreessen's definition of product market fit is, it is still a lagging indicator. By the time investors are staking out your house, you already have product market fit. And so in the April of 2017, I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. I searched high and low. I read everything I could find. I spoke with all the experts. And then I came across 
this guy, Sean Ellis. Sean had found a leading indicator, one that is benchmarked and predictive. Just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product and measure the percent who answer very disappointed? After benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed, whereas the companies that grow the most easily almost always get more than 40%. If more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, then you have initial product market fit. And in the first round review article that you mentioned, we take this notion and we build it up into an entire engine that you can use to figure out what does this people love about your product, what's holding them back, and iterate your way towards meeting and then exceeding this 40% threshold. Yeah, I, I love it because in, in theory, it's, it's so simple uh, and it's literally asking one question. I think the magic, though, lies in what you went and did uh, with that answer and with that and being able to sort of segment down the line and understand which segments you had the strongest product market fits and uh, and then which ones like the audience that you were trying to sort of in the middle win over to that um, very disappointed category from the somewhat disappointed Maybe you want to talk us through that thought process a little bit in detail and what drove you to look into segments? Like, How did you understand which segments were working best for you and which ones you wanted to try and improve and understand in the concept of like who your ideal customer profile was then looking like as well as off the back of this? Great question. And I think this hits the heart of the matter. When people think about products market fits normally, they really only think about one half of the equation, changing their product. But it is a double-sided equation. You can also change markets. And that can be hard to think through for some founders. And this is why the methodology makes that easy. So step one of the methodology is to survey. And we do this to understand what it is that people are thinking about the product. And typically I would recommend sending out four questions. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product and let them answer either very disappointed, somewhat disappointed or not disappointed? Then number two, what type of people do you think would most benefit from the product? And then number three, what is the main benefit you receive from the product? And number four, how can we improve the products for you? And then, of course, you'll look at the percentage of people who say very disappointed. Now, in the early days of Superhuman, this was only 22%, a far cry from the 40% plus that we needed to be at. But I do believe you can iterate your way from the low 20s to 40% and beyond. If, on the other hand, you find that your score is in the 10 to 15% range, then that's the area where I would recommend perhaps considering a pivot to a different market or even to a different product slash market combination. So you're going to get this data back. And then the next step, like you mentioned, is to segment. And with this, we really want to understand who are the people who love our product. And for this, I like to use the concept of the high expectation customer. And this is a concept that I found from Julie Sapan. Julie led early marketing at Dropbox Airbnb, and many other great companies. 
that high expectation customer is the most discerning person in your target demographic. They will enjoy your product for its greatest benefit and help spread the word. And critically, others want to be like them because they seem clever, judicious, and insightful. And this is where an example is really helpful because I realize that's an abstract definition. So let's, for example, take Dropbox. The Dropbox HXC wants to simplify their life. They're very trusting, they're technically savvy, they're looking to save time. I'm sure lots of our audience of the Dropbox HXC, at the end of the day, they simply want to know that somebody has their back when it comes to their life's work. I'm an example of the Dropbox HXC. As a completely different example, let's consider Airbnb. The Airbnb HXC does not simply want to visit new places, they want to travel like they belong. They want to, for example, experience Paris as if they really live there. And Airbnb's early success came from focusing on these tastemakers and these influencers. I'm an Airbnb HXC. Exactly. Now, here is the insight. This is the, the thing that I think that most people miss. Users who love your product will always describe themselves. And that means you can take the users who would be very disappointed without your product. Remember, these are the folks who really love it and analyze their answers to question number two. Who do you think this is best for? This is a very powerful question as happy users will almost always describe themselves using the words that matter most to them. You can then turn these words into a rich and detailed explanation of your own highest expectation customer. And then you can go back to the survey, take each response and assign a persona to each one. And this is the magical part. You can take the users who most love your product, those who would be very disappointed without it and use them to narrow the market. And in the case of Superhuman, we found in the early days, the people who most loved it were founders, managers, executives, folks working in business development. And then we deliberately ignored at that time, folks working in sales, customer success, engineering, and data science. And this is a very counterintuitive thing because what you're saying is we're just gonna hyper-focus on these personas and then disregard the surveys for all of the other personas. And what happened in our case is just by segmenting, just by narrowing the market, our product market fit score jumped by 10% from 22% to 32%. Now we're not quite at 40% yet, but we made significant progress in just two minutes. And then going forwards with the engine, you can start to understand what is it that people love about the product and how do we double down on that? And what is it that holds people back from loving the product? And how do we systematically address that? And I'm going to pause there because I realize I've been talking for quite some time. I can talk for days about this, but those are the next steps, which is doubling down on what people love and systematically addressing what holds people back. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was going to lead you. I think you were going in the same direction. I was going to ask the next question. So, um, the next thing as well, then you, you've sort of figured out now as well is 
which is the audience that really uh, would be disappointed by your product? You've made one simple thing by segmenting uh, the audience to try and understand who's extracting the most value and immediately then your product market fit score uh, jumps by 10%. What would the next steps then be from that? So you described sort of the users from question two, they give you a good idea of who they are, what their roles and personas are. Uh, and then question three, if I remember correctly, was sort of what uh, do you love about the product or service? Speak. Do you want to speak to us a little bit about how this then influences and feeds into your product strategy and how the team uses this information then as a tool to sort of make changes and uh, base their decisions off? Absolutely. So step one was to survey. Step two was to segment. And now step three, we need to analyze. And in particular, there are two things that we need to understand. Number one, why do people love our product? And number two, what holds people back from loving our product. And to understand why people love our product, we go back to our survey. And once again, we focus only on the users who would be very disappointed without our product. And then we analyze the results to question number three, what is the main benefit you receive from our product? And to make this real, I'll just, I'll give some examples from the early days of Superhuman. Examples like, Processing email is much faster with Superhuman. I get through my inbox in half the time. The app is crazy fast. Superhuman is so much faster than using Gmail. More efficient with my time. Speed, aesthetics. I can do everything from the core keyboard. Speed. A great set of keyboard yeah. shortcuts. So for us, we had a, a very consistent set of answers. And they'll usually be one, two, or three themes. And what I like to do whether it's for Superhuman or with any of the companies I work with on product market fit, is I take all of these answers to question number three and I turn it into a word cloud. And then I make it really big and then put it up on the wall of your office. And for Superhuman, it's as clear as day. People love it for its speed, its focus, and its keyboard shortcuts. That is why folks love Superhuman. So now we know the answer to the question. And we want to grow the size of the very disappointed segment. How do we do that? Well, first, and as painful as it is, we have to ignore the not disappointed segment. They are so far from loving the products that they are essentially a lost cause. And this is important because they will ask for all kinds of distracting things. As counterintuitive as it may feel, we must not act on their feedback. And that leaves just the somewhat disappointed segment. Maybe we can help them fall in love with our product. We most certainly can. But again, and I cannot stress this enough, we should not act directly on their feedback. Many of them will remain somewhat disappointed no matter what we do for them. And so their requests will end up just being distracting and worse, lead to a muddled, confused product. So how do we decide who to listen to? Well, once again, here's a little piece of magic. We use the main benefit of the very disappointed users. In our case, speed, focus, keyboard shortcuts. We use that to segment the somewhat disappointed users. First, the somewhat disappointed users for whom speed was not the main benefit. I strongly advise that you ignore these people because the main benefit doesn't resonate with them, whatever your main benefit happens to be. Even if you built everything they wanted, 
they are unlikely to fall in love with your product for the thing that makes it special. And second, that just leaves the somewhat disappointed users for whom speed was the main benefit, for whom the main benefit matched. Now we pay very special attention to these because the main benefit does resonate, but something, and probably something small, holds them back. So how do we figure out what? Well, we analyze this subset's response to the fourth and final question, how can we improve our products for you? And just like the previous question, I like to take these answers, turn it into a word cloud, and then you can systematically work through it. In our case, the main thing holding our users back was simple. At the time of the survey three years ago, it was the lack of a mobile app. Of course, we have since addressed that. But then it became less obvious and more interesting. Integrations, attachment handling, calendaring, better search, and so on into the long tail. Now, to increase your product's market fit score, all you have to do is build these things because that would convert these users who are only somewhat disappointed without our products into fanatics who love the product. Yeah, what I loved about this whole framework is how simple it is in practice, but how uh, you can take it and systematically apply it to your business. And uh, like, not only does it give you a way to understand how strong your product market fit is, but also to understand how to improve it. And I, I really loved this uh, this last point that you made as well is that not all feedback is equal. And we talk about this a lot on the show as well, that it's very important to understand what signals to listen to and what not to. And like what you've just described now gives you an excellent way to understand what feedback to really listen to. It's those users that are somewhat in the middle that really align with your main value proposition, your product, and they enjoying that part of the value, but there is something that's just holding them back as opposed to somebody that maybe isn't aligned with your main value of your current product, but do enjoy other parts of it. And I love that as a way to distinguish between who in the middle we should focus our time and energy on. Uh, and one other thing as well, then I think on this whole process for me as well, I think we, you mentioned the word counterintuitive quite a few times. Uh, and I definitely think it is. And we talk about these counterintuitive situations a lot when it comes to the show is that you always want to be focusing on a niche and uh, you don't want to be going after everybody. You want to have a good understanding and narrow down on understanding who your customer is. But ultimately I think as well, one thing that you also did that was counterintuitive to most popular belief was your onboarding process at Superhuman. And I wanted you to talk us through this a little bit. What was the thought process behind there? So on one side, you have a framework now for product market fit and you're working and you're iterating your way towards it. On the other side, you're onboarding new users, but you've added quite a lot of friction to your onboarding. And uh, this is something we talked about. Elena Dorfman at Segment uh, similarly had something. But most designers or most product owners or builders will tell you, you've got to get your customer to value as fast as possible. You've got to get them to that wow moment. Um, but then Superhuman came along and did something different. Maybe you want to talk us through what you did with your onboarding, what was the motivation, and what did you get out of it? Well, I 100% agree with getting customers to a wow moment as quickly as possible. And the main reason why today we continue to do onboarding is because we believe it is, in fact, the best way to do that. A lot of folks think that the onboarding process came out of this desire to perhaps manufacture scarcity or to create demand but that actually could not be further from the truth. Yeah. We 
iterated our way, much like much of superhuman, towards this onboarding process. And to begin with, it was actually myself doing them. And they looked very different. They were often one hour long, if not sometimes two hours long. I onboarded the first several hundred customers myself. And I would sit down, I would give a demonstration of superhuman. I would actually do a pricing analysis and I would ask them certain questions that helped us figure out the price points for superhuman. I would then get them to start using superhuman and I would insist on watching them use it for that first half an hour. And inevitably, as is the case with any early stage software, we would find bugs. We might find 10 or 15 bugs. And I would bring those back to the team and I would insist that we fix those bugs before we onboarded next week's cohort of users. Why? Well, because they're the bugs that the people find in the first half an hour. And we're never gonna find or fix the ones that come after that unless we fix those. It's kind of pointless to have the same bugs be reported over and over and over again. Now contrast that with the typical tech launch. You get written up on TechCrunch or Product Hunt or wherever it is, you get tens of thousands of people to come try your product. Do you really want them to all experience those same 10 to 15 shortcomings? Probably not. I think that would leave a bad image of your product with everybody. And that was certainly the outcome that we were trying to avoid. Now, the interesting thing is that after doing this process for a while, we noticed something very unusual about these users. These users had world-class retention. They had really low churn. They had industry-leading virality. Their NPS was breaking all the benchmarks that we expected. And I thought, well, is this what we built? Is it our process? Is it maybe me? Am I just so good at doing onboardings? And so we thought, well, let's remove ego from the situation. Maybe it's not me. And so I asked our head of growth to take over the process. And he started doing all of the onboardings. And he ramped it up to the next level. I was doing perhaps 10 or 15 a week. He took it to 20 to 25 per week. And he also decreased the amount of time. He took it from one to two hours to about one hour. And lo and behold, we had exactly the same outcome, industry-leading metrics. And so then we thought, well, is it him? What if we had somebody else do it? And so we hired our first few growth generalists. These were sort of full-stack growth employees. They did a little bit of everything, a little bit of customer acquisition and demand gen, a little bit of customer support, and a little bit of onboarding. And they also did 20 to 25 a week. And they managed to shrink the length of the onboarding down from one hour to 45 minutes without negatively affecting any of these metrics. And so then we thought, well, wow, this is kind of amazing. We have the beginnings of an efficient process and we also have industry leading metrics. I wonder if this could actually be our go-to market. And so we did an experiment. We hired our first four or five growth specialists. We actually call them onboarding specialists. People who would dedicate themselves to becoming utterly excellent at onboarding folks onto Superhuman. And these folks do in the region of 35 to 45 calls per week, onboardings wow. per week. And once again, we noticed that the user metrics were industry leading. And then we realized we had stumbled across a new go-to-market 
You see, historically, people did not believe that you could afford to hire people to do onboardings for a $30 a month product. No. How do you scale it? It turns out you can. How do you scale it? Yeah. How do you make it unit economic? But it turns out you can if the metrics are good enough. And I believe that it is obviously partially the product, but also partially the onboarding that contributes to this superlative outcome at the end of the day. Absolutely. I think for me and as well, like going over the show, the number one area where you can have impact to return and retention always comes down to onboarding and uh, like where the biggest impact lies typically is that people don't ever experience that value. And I uh, like you say as well in the beginning that a lot of people thought it was to do with sort of like a viral campaign to have scarcity. But I think from the perspective, looking at it from this lens is really like how vital and important this moment was for you to not only one, like get that immediate product feedback and understand, but the most importantly, you're really focusing on how do you help your customer achieve the value? Uh, and like you say, maybe it's a little bit more friction involved, but uh, you're guaranteed to get them there where you needed to because you had that time to dedicate to help them and get them there. And uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, people churn because they don't experience the value. And if you've put in a process that is enabled to make sure they get to that point, I think then the product can be unstoppable as well. And uh, until you get to that point, you have the feedback coming through and directly to you that you can iterate on and, and get your way towards uh, having that really strong product market fit and retention. So I love that. Uh, lastly, as well, I wanted to just quickly touch on, and I think like in the whole context of channel retention, why I love the story of Superhuman is like you, you alluded to it, you have these industry leading metrics is that it was, I think it was a combination of multiple different things, obviously along the way that you've really systematically gone ahead and done. And like I mentioned, obviously the product market fit uh, surveying and the methodology behind that, the friction and onboarding. And then I think another thing that was really interesting was the invite process itself and needing to receive an invite from somebody uh, in order to join the service. And again, a lot of people might turn and say, okay, this is scarcity. This is a growth model and definitely it does work. People want to see it. But another thing that I think it does is by onboarding the right customers and only getting invites from referrals of the right customers, you're only amplifying having the right people coming on board to and not just having anybody sign up for your product, which again, I think is circumstance and uh, specifically when you have a low uh, value product of like 29 or $30 or whatever it is a month is that you don't get tons of people just signing up that are just browsing or just checking out your product and giving you these false signals. So what was the thought process with this invitation process? Was it purely a scarcity thing or was it really a method to the madness of really trying to understand and making sure that you're onboarding the right customers and bringing the right people on board? It's achieved all of the outcomes that you just listed. It's real provenance. The way that it came about was from designing a growth strategy for the company. And this is something that I think every founder has to do. You have to know pretty early on how you will get to initial scale. Initial scale is this concept that Jason Lemkin characterizes as, let's say, a million dollars of ARR. Uh, and it can be hard to see beyond that, but you should at the very least know how you'll get to initial scale. And in my mind, we would always have three pillars to our growth strategy. We would have PR, because email and productivity lends itself very nicely. It's very mediagenic to PR and to press. We would have content because similarly, founders love content about how they can run 
their company better. This is why I open sourced our product market fit engine, in addition to content about how to be more productive. And thirdly, virality. And I don't mean virality in the viral loop or viral mechanics sense, but I mean in the true original sense of the word, the organic word of mouth way of virality. And this is one of the biggest lessons I learned actually when I was at LinkedIn. So when I sold my company to LinkedIn, I had the real privilege of working for our head of growth, Elliot Schmuckler, at the time. And he had scaled LinkedIn from about 25 million members to north of 250 million members. And in our first one-on-one, -on -one, I excitedly sat down and I said, Elliot, please teach me everything that you know about virality. And he said, well, the first lesson is that it doesn't really work, at least not in the way that you're thinking about it. No product, no feature has ever been able to sustain a viral loop of greater than one. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, how do things go viral? And he said, it's the things you can't measure. It's the word of mouth. It's not the address book import or the famous Dropbox symmetric incentive. It's the fact that people actually love your product, are excited about it, and will talk about it in a way that you can't measure. And he went on to share that even LinkedIn's most viral features never sustained a viral factor of greater than 0.4. And even Facebook in its heyday never sustained a viral factor of greater than 0.7. But the thing that both those companies and any other consumer brand that you care to think of has is real word of mouth. It's a real mass market brand. Now, in order to create that, you have to invest in it. And that's where our thinking from virality came from. How do you create a brand? How do you get people talking about it? Well, there has to be some reason to talk about it. Now, first and foremost, you have to build an incredible product. Secondly, you can do things like a referral incentive. In our case, there's no monetary incentive, but the incentive is you can use the product sooner rather than later to encourage and to kickstart that conversation. But I should point out that this is not worth doing unless you have a product that people already love. Unless you're at product market fit, unless you're already past the 40% benchmark that we talked about earlier, I wouldn't attempt to do this because then it might actually have the opposite effect. You'll have people turn up and become disappointed about the experience that they've just had. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think, though, uh, in terms of like the overall process, it's really it sounds like you've had a very, very, very systematic approach to things uh, at uh, Superhuman. Obviously, I think it comes from the vast experience you have from your reports of days going on to LinkedIn and then getting to work with lots of different startups uh, that you've invested in. So really, really loved sort of the systematic approach and you break down maybe more complex uh, themes and ideas into really, really simple and easy to follow steps. Lastly, I think we're running up on time now and I have one question that I ask every guest that joins the show. Um, and I want to ask you as well, obviously, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now and uh, you've joined a new company and churn and retention is not doing great at this company. And uh, the CEO comes along to you and says, we need to turn things around. Uh, we've got 90 days to try and show some results. What would you want to be doing in that first 90 days to try and help turn things around for the company? I would immediately do two things. First of all, 
I would stop measuring churn overall. Many companies do this. They measure their overall churn and start measuring it just for activated users. Because you want to separate an activation problem from a long-term value problem. And I'm a big believer in optimizing funnels from the bottom upwards. In this case, the bottom of the funnel is the long-term value proposition of the product, not did the first-time user experience happen to be effective. And so I would draw a line at Superhuman. We use, did you, after two weeks of using the product, send 90% or more of your email from Superhuman and measure the churn of that group of people separately to the churn of the people who did not meet that threshold. So that is the first step. The second step is then I would start to segment by type of user. People who are paying on their personal card versus their corporate card. And you can do some fun things with bin numbers to determine whether a card is personal or corporate. I would segment on the size of the organization for people who are paying corporately. Are they a sole proprietor? Are they an SMB? Are they a medium-sized company? Are they a large enterprise? I would then start to segment in other dimensions. Perhaps it is job title, or perhaps it is venture-funded versus a more sustainable traditional business. And I would start to see which segments are doing well and which segments are not doing well. I would also then segment against plan type. It's relatively well known that annual plans are going to have lower churn, often a percentage point lower or more. Once I have this data, I then start to create recommendations. And the recommendations might be, well, it looks like we have a long-term value problem. So we're going to go back to the basics. We're going to work on our product market fit score. Or it might be, past this certain point, customers aren't really churning. We just have a ton of churn up front. We're going to work on the first-time user experience. Or it might be the step above that, which is we're just not getting the right customers. Or maybe we are, but we're overqualifying customers and we should actually be saying no to way more customers who sign up. And that will have the effect of increasing our overall retention. Or it could be that customers from enterprise or those who pay on their corporate cards pay, or rather they retain way longer than people who are paying personally. And maybe we should develop materials and outreach programs to get people off their personal cards onto their corporate cards. And I'm just brainstorming here. I mean, there's so many things you can do, yeah, yeah. but I, 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 I would take all of these things in my first 90 days and then go back to my manager and said, this is what the data says. Here are my recommendations. Let's go. Which one can we implement? Yeah. Uh, one of the things you mentioned actually is the first time I've heard anyone say it on the show was looking at the bid numbers and you can tell the difference between a corporate and a personal card. Uh, what does that look like if you can let us know in a couple of minutes because I see we are well short on time, but uh, how does that work exactly? It's a little bit more messy than we have time for, but <laughs> the summary is you take the first six numbers of the credit card. Yeah. And if you don't have access to that, you can often convince your payment processor to add it to the API. I believe that Stripe, for example, is capable of adding it to their API. And then you can classify those bin numbers. They'll tell you the type of card. And corporate cards often have a keyword in the title of the card. There are online databases you can use to look up the bin number and map it to the name of the card. And then you can 
essentially grep across the name of the card to find a substring like business or corporate. Yeah. Well, and it's not it's not perfect. It's like any other classification. Yeah, it's it's going to have a margin of error, but I suspect it will show you that the people who buy on their corporate cards retain way way better, and that therefore there is value to getting people to migrate over. Now I've noticed with Superhuman we have this behavior where a lot of people will sign up personally first because they don't want to have that conversation with their manager yet until they've tried it, which is completely reasonable. Yep. And then they intend to move to their corporate card later. But sometimes life gets busy, they might forget. And so that little bit of of a reminder might be helpful in getting them to move over. Yeah, this is definitely a super common case uh, for people like specifically in larger companies where it's a little bit more of a complicated process to get new tools or services approved. And the easiest thing is just to try it out with your own personal email, your own personal card. And then uh, once you have your satisfied with the solution, uh, get buy-in from the company. But I really find that interesting on the credit card side. I've never heard that before as well. Something maybe for us to even look in, uh, look into as well. But um, Raul, I really loved today's episode. It was great chatting to you. Love learning from you as well. Uh, is there anything you want to leave the guests with before you leave? Like how can they keep up to speed with what you're doing? Anything they should be on the lookout for before we go? A few thoughts. I'd say number one, there is no silver bullet. Working on churn and retention is the product of being analytical, but also following your intuition. And most importantly of all, constantly iterating every single day. Secondly, I would say if folks are interested in learning more from me or following me, they can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Rahul Vora. And uh, if they want to email me directly, anyone is more than welcome to do so. They can find me at Rahul at superhuman.com. And thirdly, I should say, if anyone is looking to skip the line for Superhuman, I can definitely make that happen. So please just drop me a note at rahul at superhuman.com and I can see what I will do. Awesome. Very cool. And I think I'm going to use that first opening line as the new intro for the podcast as well. There is no silver bullet when it comes to churn and retention. Uh, thanks so much for joining the show today, Rahul. It's been a pleasure having you and I wish you best of luck and much success now going forward. Thank you, sir. Take care. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.